0: I am officially standing up and getting on my soapbox now. (laughs) Um, The term is social equity. I can't think of many places that social equity has actually worked. It's the right thing. It's a great idea. But instead of awarding people that have been affected by cannabis licenses, what they need to do is they just need to give these fucking people money.
1: Hey, Carl, how's it going?
2: Things are great. How about you, Iram?
1: Things are moving. It's just so exciting to see how more people are learning about biotechnology and climate tech. As we know, our friend of the pod, Kristen Ellis, says the Venn diagram of biology and climate is a circle because the Earth is living and the Earth is our climate. And a big event is happening at this time. It's COP28. It's happening in Dubai. And a lot of our friends have been going there.
2: Well, I think before we talk about who we know that's going, I think we should just mention that COP28 is a meeting that happens every year where governments and the private sector get together to address the climate crisis. COP actually stands for the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So clearly, it's something that's very, very important, given that there is this Venn diagram that Chris Nellis said between climate and biotech being the same thing. I think it's important that biotech is there and has been there for many years. I think we first noticed it when we reached out to someone who we'd like to have on the pod, Molly Morse of Mango Materials. Mango is a company I've known for many years. Molly and her team take greenhouse gases and turn them into a biodegradable fiber. And so Molly was the first person that said, oh, yeah, I can't talk until after I come back from COP28. And you said you noticed a couple of people that were going as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I saw people posting from LinkedIn that they were attending. And I'm actually going to be in Dubai a couple of days after. So I was also trying to see who I could meet if they were still going to remain in Dubai after the conference. So I saw that. Patricia, who's a CEO of 4Billion, we've had her co-founders Gabe and Samet on this podcast talking about cultivating meat, lab-grown meat. And she unfortunately will be gone before I get there, but I always enjoy speaking with her. I've seen her a few times at different conferences and events around the alternative protein space. And a friend Davida from Oficina will also be there, which is very interesting. Yeah, Oficina
2: Bio. Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is as COP28 is happening, as we record this, the United Nations also released a framework for, they call it an ethical framework for climate engineering. The idea is that this framework will guide the study and deployment of technologies that could help mitigate climate change. Now, I only gave this thing a quick perusal. I did not see any mentions of the use of biotechnology for geoengineering. One of the things that I know gets talked a lot about is things like solar radiation modification, which involves things like shooting sulfur into the air. But we know that microbes are very efficient at sequestering carbon there are a number of technologies and companies that are using microbes to sequester carbon. So I'm surprised that biotech isn't mentioned directly in this report, at least what I've seen. So if that's the case, I'd love to hear more from our listeners. What do you think about microbes for terraforming, erom?
1: Yeah, I think it's the number one thing. That is how Earth was, I guess, terraformed is the word, or at least was oxygenated by microbes in the sea. Our friend Czar Summers of Lanzatech talked about that on her episode of the pod, which I didn't even think about, really. I mean, as you know, Carl and I, we have all of these businesses in our back pocket for when AI comes after us and takes over our jobs. <laughs> One of those ideas that I've been thinking about for many, many years is idea of terraformation and biology is at the center of that, especially now that I've been working with you, Carl, and meeting all of these biotech entrepreneurs, learning about what they're doing, like our friend Nicole from Alonia, with their environmental remediation, using special microbes to remove PFAS from the environment. But how do you leverage other microbes, whether they are in the soil or in the water or other places to solve some of the challenges of climate change? And there are many. And thinking about it holistically, again, we said at the top of this episode, biology and climate go hand in hand. But a lot of climate tech, like you're saying, solar energy, and that's just very limited way of thinking about it solar energy requires a lot of extraction of precious metals in order to make those panels. And those are limited. We have friends working in some of the mining companies telling us that that's going to be a big issue and encouraging other solutions besides hard electronics, because there is a limit of how many electronics can be made unless we go and extract them from asteroids. I'm watching the show For All Mankind on Apple TV. Go watch it. It's not an ad. Apple does not pay us to talk about their shows. But they have a whole episode where they have a asteroid extraction situation happening to get those precious metals to Earth because we're limited. So that's a whole long way of saying that biology needs to be looked at as a sustainable solution versus just tools and hard tech.
2: Yeah, it's super interesting. I've been listening to a French astrophysicist, climate philosopher, whose name is Aurelien Barreau. This idea of extracting is something that he speaks to, but he really focuses more on saying the issue isn't needing more energy or needing more minerals to extract from the earth. The issue is really understanding that whole model is just completely broken. And maybe that model is fixed or transformed radically by the use of biology to grow everything. There have been articles about living computers and slime molds being used to develop pathways and the intelligence that is in a lot of these biological organisms is something that we should be looking at. Auro argues against techno-optimism and technological solutions. He's not super, super radical, but yet fairly radical. I think he's an interesting guy. He does speak English, but I've seen him come into a place like COP 28. That's not where I think he is, but where he just says, I will refuse to speak English. It's the colonizer's language, even though France has that history as well. But most of the things I've seen of him, he's speaking in French and very deep philosophical conversations about the climate crisis and our need to change our ways. And he is a well-regarded astrophysicist who runs one of the astrophysics departments at the University of Grenoble in France. So he's not some crazy philosopher. But this idea of the microbiome of the Earth and leveraging the microbiome for the Earth to save the planet, if we want to say that, or mitigate the climate crisis. I think is super interesting. What we've learned in doing this podcast and in our conversations with people is that we don't even understand our own microbiome, the human microbiome, the gut, the skin. We don't know how they're influenced by drugs that we take. So there's still a lot to learn.
1: I hear you. I was actually at the dermatologist last week and I just really wanted to get an allergy test because sometimes I'll like develop a little rash and I'm like, what is that from? And... She actually did not look at my skin. She just kind of asked me some questions and ultimately diagnosed me with having eczema, like dry skin. And I'm like, well, okay, is that dry skin from me having a lack of microbes on my skin? She looked at me like I was talking pseudoscience.
2: How (laughs) old is this dermatologist? I'm super curious.
1: She's my age. She works at a very large health system in New York. She's read about the microbiome and she's like, yes, I've heard about some things along those lines, but I can only tell you what's published and that we accept in our health system. So I can't go beyond that. So she went to med school and I really respect her for that. But being in this health system, she's almost like a technician. I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying more in a, she has to follow certain protocols and can't go beyond that. And then we talked about microbiomes. I'm like, I'm in the world of biotechnology. And she's like, oh, that's really interesting. And I was talking to her about our friends, Jasmina of Archaea, creating scent arcs looking at the microbes under your armpits. And I talked her about one company that came out of the Merck Digital Sciences Studio called BioCortex. That is looking at how the pharmaceutical drugs or recreational drugs that you take how your gut microbiome converts that and how does it affect the efficacy of those drugs? How does it change it? That's such a new science that's emerging. And it's really interesting to see what's going on in the environmental microbiome side and what can we learn from that and take it into the human microbiome type of analytical tools are going to be developed but especially, I think what's going to be interesting and I've been curious about is like on the recreational side, when you're taking any type of drug, how does a microbiome interact with it? We know someone really well that looks at not only the biotech side of cannabis, but also the entrepreneurial side of cannabis. How do you take something that people want, that is highly regulated, create a company around it and sell it legally? And what does that look like? That is, you're a good friend for quite some time, Seth has been on this podcast already. So what do you have to say about Seth?
2: So I'm excited to have Seth Yekutan back on the podcast. Seth had one of our highest rated, most listened to episodes, quickly climbed up the charts. And we've gotten a lot of great comments from listeners on Seth's first interview. And so I'm super excited to have him on again. Seth is the first guest we've had on twice. And I consider him to be a good friend of mine we can now say he's a friend of the pod. As we mentioned, Seth splits his time between cannabis and biotech. And sometimes there is an overlap between the two of those. He and I have known each other for many, many years. He's someone who I admire greatly. He has an outsized LinkedIn presence that I highly recommend you check out. But let's let Seth take it away. Right, Seth Yakutan, welcome back to the Grow Everything podcast. You are the first repeat guest that we've ever had. We claim a lot of people are friends of the pod. They are, but they're not friends of the pod the way you are friend of the pod. And just so our listeners know, we talk to Seth a lot. So we're super happy that he took the time to come and talk to us again. What's going on in your world?
0: How are you guys? I'm honored and I will say the same thing that I said last time. I just can't believe that anyone would be willing to listen to the bullshit that comes out of my mouth for an hour. So appreciate the platform. Just staying busy, staying yeah. busy in the verticals that I'm looking at and getting ready for the end of the year and getting ready for a new year and JP Morgan and Bio Europe and Expo West and three trade shows that are going to happen in cannabis in that period of time. So just getting ready.
2: Yeah, but listen, you say that people don't listen to you, but in the past year, you've become a force of nature on LinkedIn, mostly writing about cannabis, but a lot about entrepreneurship. You've become a top voice when it comes to entrepreneurship. Do you know what your numbers have been in the past year? Like, could you tell us where were you a year ago and what wasn't one of the questions we sent you, but what motivated you to become so active on LinkedIn and how has that changed your life?
0: Well, great question.
2: Rum said she was going to throw some curveballs. Let me throw out the first one.
0: First of all, it was totally unintentional. Two things kind of happened for me in the last year or 18 months. In November of 2022, I made a decision to completely get off of Instagram. I just found that I was mindlessly wasting time caring about people's lives and opinions that I had no connection to. And I wanted that time back. So that left me on one form of social media only, which was LinkedIn, because I had gotten off of everything else previously. And in about May of 2022, I realized somehow that I had 22,000 followers. And just like anything else that I do, I kind of said, gosh, there's got to be a way to monetize this. I don't know what it is. And I just started leaning into it. And that's really how it occurred. So in terms of the numbers, I have looked at the numbers and my numbers are staggering absolutely unbelievably staggering, so much so that I've now developed a business to manage other people's LinkedIn accounts and to coach people just generally based upon it. And I actually looked at my numbers last night for another reason, and I'm going to tell them to you, and I'm going to tell you that they are going to blow you away. So year to date in the last 12 months, I have done 2 million impressions on LinkedIn, and that is up 23,000% in one year. And I have achieved 27,000 interactions, however they measure that. And that is up 36,000% over the year. So the numbers are ridiculous. I guess when you start from zero, it's really easy because numbers don't lie. But it's been amazing. It's definitely a platform that I plan to lean into more. I've been able to learn a new skill transitioning from an old bidder. Larry David-like character into a young part of the creator economy.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're definitely an influencer. You're a top entrepreneur voice, very impressive content. I'm always liking it. I'm engaging with it. Your episode remains one of the top episodes that we've had. It was a great episode. We learned a lot. I've learned a lot. I want to kind of take it back to a reflection of what has happened since then. So, Since our last conversation, what are the biggest positive developments you've noticed in the cannabis industry? And what are some new ways biotech's being applied to the cannabis industry?
0: So a lot has happened since then. I'll probably break it up into two ways. So the first thing is that although there's not a tremendous amount of capital that's available to cannabis companies, specifically in the last two quarters or so, money has definitely begun to flow into cannabis again. So there's two flavors of that. Large senior secured loans have begun to flow. So just recently, in the last 45 days, a company called Cresco refinanced a property. New York at very reasonable interest rates. A company called AYR, which is a top 10 company, had about $425 million of debt coming due in 24. They refinanced it, kicked it out to 26 and raised money. A company called MerriMed paid off a loan to probably one of the leading lenders in the space called Chicago Atlantic and refinanced and raised money at a lower rate. So you're starting to see secure debt pricing come down and more money flow. On the the private side, leading and best companies, which I would define as north of $10 million to $75 million in revenue and functionally operational, meaning either break-even or generating cash flow, and there's only about 45 to 75 of those companies in the entire United States, those companies are able to raise money. Not a lot, but they're raising money. So there are four late-stage privates every single one of which I've talked about on my LinkedIn feed for the last year that have all quietly raised money. So the first thing that you're seeing to me in cannabis is that you've gone from your proverbial nuclear winter to money trickling into the market. What I have done is, if you think about my workspace as the old war games room where I have a bunch of people looking at rain, our screens i've started to look at things because that's what it is i've started to have a lot of things be tracked harder non-us markets specifically australia and specifically anywhere that cannabis is being commercialized in europe is definitely looking more at a medicinal pharma type of model so i do think i'm seeing things in australia where more traditional drug delivery methodologies are being deployed in order to dispense or deliver cannabis to patients. I think Germany, Switzerland, where you're growing it, the UK, those are markets where cannabis is being developed in a CGMP type of fashion or attempting to be grown in a CGMP type of fashion and delivered in a metered way to patients as a medical product. So much so that if you get a vape cartridge now in Germany, you have to go to a pharmacy with a prescription. And the pharmacy literally fills the vape cartridge while you're there. So... I'm definitely seeing more biotech or pharma-like methodologies in the dispensing of cannabis in non-U.S. markets, so that's one way. I've definitely seen a couple of companies, we talked about rare cannabinoids last time, I've definitely seen a couple of companies who have a manufacturing or supply business on the cannabis or on the rare side that are moving into therapeutics. There's a company out of the Pacific Northwest called FloraWorks, which develops and manufactures CBN, for the recreational market that's attempting to move that product forward therapeutically in a bunch of different areas. I'm definitely seeing things like Jeff Chen, who used to run the cannabis effort very famously at UCLA for several years created a company which would be interesting to you guys called Radical Sciences and basically what that is it's a virtual clinical trials organization and they believe that there's this untapped undiscovered universe of therapies among non-prescription consumer health and wellness products so they've effectively created this ai driven virtual d2c clinical trial approach and a lot of psychedelics and cannabis products are using that as the platform to advance their product forward I think you might have connected with Endocanna, Len May. And Len effectively uses traditional pharmaceutical level diagnostics to make a prognosticative view of what kind of cannabis you should use.
1: It actually uses your genetic information to create custom, not formulations, but recommendations of products. So if you want to participate in that, you would have to just sign up and they send you a kit with a swab and you swab your cheeks and then they make recommendations which is a very I, inter- interesting method
0: i talked to him a week or two ago i also think like they developed their own chip to do that so you're seeing that but there's a few others that i've seen that take that approach we're going to provide a diagnostic view of cannabis loading ai and diagnostics on the front end of it so i saw a startup called xsto bio which kind of takes lens idea and puts AI and like a clinician practice on it in order to provide you as the patient a better outcome for medicine and you as the clinician a better foot forward. I've also started to look a lot harder at some of the cannabinoid-oriented therapeutics companies. There's a company out of Israel that's come back in my radar screen called BioNanoSim, which has a selective CB1 modulator for obesity early in the clinic, but moving. There's another company called Barrel Therapeutics, which has taken a bunch of compounds out of machine. Shulam's lab and is trying to advance those for women's health. You know, I'm definitely seeing more and more and more stuff, but I'm not necessarily sure that you've seen the biotech side of cannabis therapy encroach much deeper into the consumer or the wellness side of cannabis yet, but I think you will.
2: So, do you have any idea in terms of what is consumption numbers look like, overall sales? the data that I'm seeing
0: anecdotally in California is that two things are happening. In mature markets, consumers are becoming sensitive to price. So you're seeing aggregate basket size decrease, but you're not seeing a decrease in people coming through you're seeing almost an increase sometimes in numbers of people coming through. So while revenues might be down in mature states or slightly down in mature stores, it's because people are buying smaller amounts, they're not buying less. You're seeing states that are coming online go nuts Michigan, which was largely thought a dead state, did really well last quarter. New Jersey's on fire, Arizona's on fire, Missouri's on fire. I started recently working, shameless plug, with a data analytics company called Roots AI that has the capability to really, for the first time, measure and look at consumer behavior and see what's happening at a store level in real time with real data. And again, I would substantiate the trends that it seems like demand is not decreasing for the product.
1: Yeah, I have a question on if this data revealed that the amount of new consumers, consumers that have been convinced versus our friendly stoners from the past, that we know that they're not going away. But I've heard of people's parents getting into it to alleviate some of their growing pains. So just curious if there's any data on like net new customers.
0: I would just caution that I would probably defer to Roots AI to confirm what I'm saying. But the anecdotal read that I've gotten out of there is the following. The reason that that data set is differentiated is it looks at repeat customers, not new customers. Because if you look at things from a probabilistic perspective, every single new customer is a dependent event, whereas you can extrapolate data out of repeat customers in a better way. The data that we've seen there says that there are certain segments that are really, really, really strong. You're 25 to 44-year-old man is really strong. Your 55 to 75 consumer is probably the most loyal. So if you can get that older consumer in a store, they're going to keep coming back. Also looking at aggregate basket sizes out of that data, one thing which I really was surprised by was that concentrates are usually so shatter or wax, the stuff that you're going to do dabs with, I always never really paid a lot of attention to. And looking at the consumer segment that comes and buys shatter and wax, they're the most frequent and the most loyal and usually the biggest ticket. If you have 12, 15% of your customer base that's coming in and buying the same product and spending a lot of money, the big insight that I gleaned was you got to go after them. But to your point, I am seeing a lot of stickiness in the retail storefront level with an older consumer who's willing to come back to a store.
2: And what about in terms of like setbacks or positives when it comes to regulations at both the state or the federal level? Are those having an effect on consumption? I mean, you mentioned Michigan going strong, but it's been legal in Michigan for a while if I remember right. But what about any other states that have recently come online? I mean, you mentioned New Jersey going full force too. Jersey's been online for a while. And as I mentioned, as we were coming on, I've got two dispensaries under me. In Dumbo, it wasn't enough to get one across the street. Now there's actually one in my building, both illegal, I am guessing.
0: Well, I won't comment on the ownership of the one in your building. I mean, I might have something to do with that, given our relationship. But two thoughts there, setbacks and opportunities, and then maybe how I've seen biotech interweaved in that as well, if there's an angle there. So I think there's probably three things that have happened recently that are interesting. The most interesting thing to me is where is cannabis not allowed? Okay, so start there. And there's basically four states where cannabis is still fully illegal. South Carolina, Kansas, Wyoming, and Idaho. So that leaves you with essentially 46. And out of those 46, CBD is effectively or some form of cannabis is permitted, I think, in 14 of them or 13 of them, which gives you about 32 or 33 states where some form of cannabis is legal. So I start to look at it that way. Maryland and Ohio, since we did an interview last time, both went from medicinal to recreational, which effectively usually triples or quadruples the size of a market instantly. So you've seen that happen. And those have happened, at least in Ohio, in response to voter-driven legislation. So that was a very big deal. And when a state does that, it's just going to blow up. It, It just is. A lot of the dynamics that exist change, and it causes risks for people that are currently operating there and then opportunities for new people, which I could get into. Something else that's really been on my mind is the farm bill. The farm bill was effectively extended for a year with no changes. And remember what the farm bill permits is the farm bill permits the growth of hemp with THC levels below a very specified level. And with what you extract out of the farm bill, you can... Out of those four states that we mentioned, you can pretty much sell that product with some nuance in all the other 46 states. The other thing that Farm Bill kind of preserves the extension of is the Delta-8, Delta-9 intoxicating cannabinoid loophole that exists where you can take Farm Bill derived hemp and extract out of it Delta-8 or Delta-9 which is as intoxicating as what you can get from cannabis, if not more intoxicating. And that product is available at almost any smoke, bacon convenience store that you're going to find, and you can buy it direct to consumer over the internet. So there's a very large market there, which was concerned about what was going to happen to Farm Bill, and that's been punted. The other thing I've been looking at as it relates to biotech, and this is something that many people may not be aware of, there are eight DEA-licensed cannabis growers and operators in the United States that have largely been granted licenses to grow cannabis for research purposes. The first of which was in Mississippi, it was at the Mississippi School of Pharmacy, and a lot of people have heard about that. But there's another six or seven companies that have the same license. And I've seen a couple of those show up recently for either capital or other things. There's a woman that I know who she is, I don't know her personally, who's named Suzanne Sisley out of Scottsdale, who has an entity called Scottsdale Research Institute. You know, And what they do is they grow GMP-derived cannabis and try to use that as a clinical trial site to look at smoked and vaporized cannabis flower and psilocybin for pain and PTSD and opioid reduction and all that. I've definitely seen an uptake in capital-raising efforts around those six or eight companies in that vertical who are trying to raise capital for DEA-regulated and approved cannabis for medicinal studies. And if you just Google DEA-approved cannabis suppliers, there's a list on the NIH website of all of them. So I've definitely seen that more and more and more in terms of things which are changing.
1: That's really interesting because I remember in our last conversation, we talked a lot about the levels of which cannabis is produced. So the regulations on the growing and then the distribution of cannabis. And actually, just to be clear, there's cannabis and then there's the THC cannabis. That's a little bit more regulated. But right now, we're still talking state by state. There has been no federal level regulation to the sale and purchase and flow of product besides this DA licensed growers for medicinal purposes.
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: And to that point, Arum, that's the catalyst. We talked about it last time and people talk about it all the time, which is that cannabis is still a schedule one narcotic in the United States. And until that changes in some way, shape or form, and I'm not going to express an opinion of which way it should go or how it's going to manifest. But once that changes, it is at least a micro watershed, if not a, a macro watershed moment for the industry.
2: You see a lot of companies, and you've talked a lot about mostly positive developments overall. Who's having a hard time and why? Well,
0: (laughs) most people are having a hard time. Not to shamelessly plug my LinkedIn, but earlier this week, I did a post about how much capital there is not in cannabis. And again, we talk about these amazing corollaries between biotech and cannabis. And programming note, I'm going to put up a post about that soon it's in the works and i think it'll be interesting the point that i was going to make is that if we're all biotech entrepreneurs and operators if we go to jp morgan we're going to end up at a coffee table or at a cocktail party and we're going to be complaining how little capital there is in the space and how all the investors are hoarding it and how we can't understand why pfizer and gsk are making the decisions that they're making so we're in de facto a very tough capital market always in biotech. The biotech investing universe is 27 times larger than the cannabis universe, 27. So the first problem that plagues cannabis is that there's just not a lot of money. So start there. There's probably four things that I've seen since our last conversation that exacerbate those challenges. I have been exceptionally vocal and obstinate that whoever wins California is going to be some of the most important people in cannabis in the world, which is why I am focused here. The market still has not fully corrected itself and will still go through probably another two or three rounds of correction until it has right-sized. So since we last spoke, two major things have happened in California. In June, July, the largest distributor in the state went bankrupt. That was called Herbal. In cannabis, there's a middle layer, layer that if you're a product and you're taking it to a store. You either have to self-distribute that product to the store or you have to hire a third-party distributor to take it to the store. And unlike the others in the state, what Herbal had done was Herbal bought the product from the company and carried that AR. And it acted kind of as a bank in doing that. And at its peak, Herbal was about $300 million in revenue. It lost Select and Packstone and Rock Garden, which were three of the largest customers it had. It dropped to about 110 million in revenue, and it went under. So herbal going under was... There's this thing on Wall Street called Triple Witching Hour. It was like a single witching hour event. It wasn't an environmental disaster for the whole market. But if you were caught up in the herbal mess, it was a nightmare. And there's some companies who did not survive that mess. So that happened. Two of the biggest lenders in the space kind of shut off the end of last year, which we talked about. And then yesterday, yesterday, a fairly large delivery service called Grassdoor essentially went belly up as well. So you're starting to see a seismic shift in the market companies that have not been able to either raise sufficient enough capital or operate effectively are starting to crumble. And I, I will publicly say that I believe that in the first two quarters of 2024, that there are four retailers that are on my radar screen in California that each have anywhere between seven and 20 doors. And I believe that two of those will go bankrupt or be sold as well. So that's the first thing that I'm seeing, which is further correction in California. California. A second thing that I'm seeing is that the cannabis industry seems to like to sue the hell out of each other. So in the past couple of months, there have been three or four pretty phenomenal lawsuits. Uh, cookies has been sued by two or three different of its investors in exceptionally salacious allegations. I have commented on that publicly for. And I will just say that if you read the lawsuit, the allegations are very not friendly. I work for a company called Glasshouse. They're probably my single biggest cannabis perch. They were famously sued by a company called Catalyst here in Southern California, alleging unfair business practices and other things. I was also part of the Ease Green Dragon merger and Green Dragon ended up suing Ease for that merger. And I think Cresco has sued or for truly for poaching employees. So the infighting on the lawsuit side of the industry has kind of upregulated significantly. And I don't know that I've seen that in other industries in the same way. The third thing I'd say in terms of challenges is that New York State is kind of still a disaster. And I believe it will be a disaster until your kids are in their 30s. I've lost kind of faith in the political process in our country and in politicians in general. And whether it's New York State or Washington, there have been three or four rounds of licensing in New York State, and they've completely mismanaged every single round. And I think this round's going to be worse. And I don't see a path for me to participate in New York State in cannabis for the foreseeable future as a result of that. The other thing that I would probably say to you in terms of challenges is is that you've had the drumbeat of federal change, but you haven't had any already around federal change. And given the lack of complete clarity or complete ability to make decisions in Washington, D.C. in general and this upcoming election, which kind of scares the shit out of me on both sides, I don't see cannabis getting pushed to the front of the agenda in the foreseeable future.
2: I was just going to make a couple comments. You said that there's 27 times more investment in biotech than in cannabis, which I find to be super interesting. And I guess it doesn't surprise me. I agree with you. The New York thing continues to be a disaster. It's like I've said it before, between here and Barclays Center, which is about a mile and a half from me, I probably have 20 illegal bodega dispensaries. I mentioned there's two in Dumbo, one across the street from my building, one downstairs in the building. That was kind of surprising. They just popped up out of nowhere. And I see a lot of people going in there. I don't know how New York is going to fix that at all.
1: I think one of the things is that New York State, and correct me if I'm wrong, they only have five growers, something like that. It's a very limited amount of licenses. And they only have like three legal dispensaries. Very, very small. Although people are buying... Despite whatever regulations, there's going to be people growing. There's going to be people buying. And so that's always going to be happening. I think what's really interesting, I recall one of your LinkedIn's because now you are the biggest LinkedIn influencer in the space. You Mm -hmm. mentioned the concept of asset light companies. (laughs) Stop laughing. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so you mentioned asset like companies. So companies that are just buying the herb and creating products from it can win. You have this perspective on that. Do you still believe that? Can you touch on that in terms of getting companies to be built, get the product B2B style and sell directly to the market without having to have all this land and other high capital expenditures on their books?
0: Well, let's talk about two separate questions that you've kind of asked, right, which is New York State. New York State is probably the state that I follow the least. Your numbers sound about right-ish.
2: I just looked it up just to interrupt. So there's supposedly 463 licenses were issued in July of this year, but only 20 legal dispensaries were open at that point. And I believe, you're um it's four in New York City.
0: Four in the city. Yeah. So,
2: and so people have complained see- every time. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about just the New York State dysfunction and why there's two wheels of dysfunction. The first wheel of dysfunction is that there's no enforcement. And I don't know how that changes. So I spent four weeks in August in New York City, in the city, in Soho. That Soho, Chinatown, Little Italy area, I think there's more illegal shops there than anywhere I've ever been. And I brought my 16-year-old son with me. And I went into 44 stores, and I brought him in every one. And I wanted to see what was there, what I could buy, who was looking over my shoulder, and were they going to do anything because I had a 16-year-old kid with me. Now, my son's about 6'4", so he looks like a man. But I'll tell you, every single one of those stores had no enforcement, had no legality to it, had a bunch of brands that I have seen on shelf in California, and not a single one of them had had a problem selling weed to my son.
2: So just as an FYI, so just to interrupt you as you go on, for those who don't know, when you go to a dispensary in California, before you go in, they take your ID, they verify your ID. And so before you can go in and buy any product, you've already like passed a test. No one in New York is doing that. And I haven't gone to the legal ones. I don't know if you have, but what you're describing, Seth, is exactly my experience. You walk up to the counter and buy whatever you want. doesn't matter how old you are.
0: So the first problem that you have is enforcement. Okay. The second problem that you have is that the licensing machine in New York is broken. And further exacerbating that is we talked about lawsuits. Every time someone's issued a license, a bunch of people sue them on top of it. It's a messy system. And until the enforcement system gets fixed, I think it's hard. If you continue to have a legislative group, which is going to change its mind on its regulations every point in time, and you're going to have a bunch of people that feel disenfranchised for some reason, because they're not getting awarded this golden ticket, which isn't a golden ticket, which is just not a golden ticket. I think you're going to have problems in New York for a while. You would ask the second part of a question there, which is about models that function. And what about asset light models? So I've talked a lot about the fact that I think that there are probably 70 to 100 companies in cannabis in the United States that have somewhere between 10 to call it 75 million in revenue and are either near break-even or generating real cash flow and profitability. And they kind of break down into about four or five different models. The first model is they grow their product, sell it in a single state. So put a brand like Pure Beauty or put a brand like a Golden State into that box. That's one box that functions. You have a second set of companies that are called inverse license or semi-asset light brands where they'll take over someone's facility in another state in what's called a management services agreement, and they will then install their SOP. So they'll rent someone's license, but they'll do the manufacturing and they'll do the sales and they'll do the distribution. And that's a very, very, very successful model in certain product SKUs. And two companies, Timeless and Grune Edibles, are probably the masters of that. So they're each in five or six states. They're generating mid-range double-digit revenues and both extremely profitable and rolling those models out in seven to 10 states. So that's a second model that clearly functions. A third model that clearly functions is I'm going to have a grow and I'm going to have two or three stores to support that grow. And that's all I'm going to do. So I'm going to focus on growing just enough product to sell it through my stores on a limited footprint basis. And there's probably six companies that I know that have that model in a state or two states. There are certainly people who can operate just retail operations effectively. I did a piece on a company in California called Embark, which is the leader of that right race. Their trick is that they seem to be able to win licenses in municipalities where there's only one or two stores, and they're very, very good at what they do. And then there's the asset light brand model. And I do believe that the asset light brand model will work. You just have to be very, very efficient at it. And probably the two most efficient companies at it are a company called Old Pal and a company called Packwoods. I think it's hard to start that model and be efficient at it. Old Pal raised a lot of money, established itself as probably one of the leading brands in its lower segment, lower price tier in California, and then decided to kind of go multi-state in this asset light model where they effectively are a packaging company. Meaning if they go to Massachusetts, they're going to find somebody who's going to grow and process. They're going to show up with their packaging. And they're going to say, fill my package and we'll help you get it into the store and promote the brand. That's a licensing deal. So old pals is going to pick up. High single digits to low teens of the revenue that's generated in the state. And so long as Old Pal can keep its GNA at corporate low enough, that's a model that functions. But remember, if they're doing $100 million in total revenue in the U.S., maybe they're picking up 7 to $15 million of it in their pocket because they're only really licensing the brand to go multi-state. Probably the most effective brand doing that right now is a company that you're going to see everywhere called Packwoods. So Packwoods is a beast. It's two guys that are largely from the traditional market that came up with effectively a blunt, a glass tip blunt wrapped in a tobacco leaf rolled in keef. So it's a gigantic item. And they've rolled that into kind of seven or eight different markets. So they have a THC division where effectively outside of one or two states, they take an asset light model. They have very iconic branding. They've taken that into just smoke and vape in the non-cannabis market. They also, because they're known for their wraps, their the stuff that goes around the product. They've been able to take a product and put it into C Store and Convenience and non cannabis. So that's an entity which probably has mastered the asset light packaging model. They're also in the D8D9 side of the business. So you know one of the interesting things there is that if you lined up their product, if you looked at their cannabis vape and their smoke or nicotine vape, and you looked at their D8 vape, you think they're the same product. The packaging of them is not unique enough to be able to say, oh, well, that's this, is So they built brand affinity around what they've done historically in the legacy market and rolled it out into a much, much, much bigger business. But I do think that that model works. And you know, there's definitely other models that work. The asset light model is really hard to do from scratch. You need to establish presence somewhere and then roll out from there to do it.
1: So we talk a lot about cannabis. It's an example of a Schedule One narcotic now becoming a little bit more accessible, I guess, or just a little bit more marketable. But there are others. There are others that are coming into market. There's others that are being used regularly for recreational purposes and also used for new ways of treating different types of diseases. Two that come to mind, we have ketamine and psilocybin. They've been coming up in our world a lot, particularly ketamine. I've been hearing about it a lot on other podcasts, getting big in the world of Silicon Valley tech people. I also have seen a lot of Facebook ads where it's like, take this assessment to see if you qualify for our ketamine subscription. There's a lot going on in terms of being able to access this. I'm thinking this is legal. I don't know if Facebook regulates that part of advertising, but curious if you've seen what's going on in these spaces, which companies are coming up for what uses, any thoughts on that front?
0: Well, the myth of my deep and intense knowledge of all things would take a big hit if I didn't have an opinion here. So I do have some very strong opinions. I have casually observed psychedelics as a class of compounds since 2018. And the real reason that I've observed them is that when you look at plant medicine in general, plant medicine seems to, for a long time, have a great deal of efficacy. It's just very, very, very hard to translate that into a pharmaceutical product. Maybe you guys can recall One of the big cancer drugs was actually like the dude went into the Amazon and found toad venom and turned it into something. You remember that? I don't remember what that was. but So you have this long legacy of plant medicine working. The problem with plant medicine, though, is plant medicine doesn't really fit into a pharmaceutical paradigm. And if I've waxed upon this before, I'll do it again. I've led the effort for eight traditional pharmaceutical co-development deals or partnerships. And pharma products usually require issued composition of matter patent, known mechanism of action, synthetic manufacturing at scale, safe and repeatable dosing, and FDA regulatable claims. So anytime anyone comes to me with a plant-based medicine, usually there's problems why usually it's pretty well known so you can't patent it usually there's more than one active so you really don't know how it works and if there's more than one active it's usually hard to scale anything in plant medicine cannabis makes that even harder because it's federally illegal psychedelics though psychedelics fits into the pharma model really 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 well why it's usually one small molecule if i'm the first to market and i can't patent it i can get exclusivity around it because i'm going after some kind of a rare disease if I'm really smart, I can probably synthesize that molecule and make an analog to it, or I can put something around it to make it proprietary. And it's one thing. Now, it might not be a legal thing, but it's one thing. So it fits into the model a lot better. So to your point, I've kept an eye on psychedelics for a while because of that, because it's the one thing in plant medicine that seems to work really well, seems to have a huge level of unmet need. And it's not a lift for pharma. It like fits into what they're doing. I break psychedelics down into effectively four cohorts. You have a group of people that are in drug discovery and drug development, and there's probably 25 publics that I keep an eye on and 25 privates that I track. You have a group of probably 10 or 12 companies that are in the manufacturing and synthesis side of it. And I don't really keep as much of an eye on them just because I think that that's going to get democratized there's plenty of places where you can manufacture these things. The other area that I look a lot at is treatment clinics and wellness centers. Now, it's the treatment clinics and wellness centers side of the industry, which I think is honestly, to me, the most interesting. So there's two pretty well-known public companies in Field Trip and Numinous that I definitely keep an eye on because most of these therapies, at least the ones that are the furthest along in the clinic, usually are going to require some practitioner assistance. Delivery modality. So you're not just giving the patient the psychedelic, you're giving the patient the psychedelic in conjunction with a course of therapy over a period of time. And I believe that until that becomes unhinged, people like Field Trip and Numinous and Awaken and Levity and Braxia are going to be important. There's another big private one called Beckley Retreats. There's also, in the fourth cohort, kind of a CPG and adult use side of things. There's three public companies in that vertical that I look at. There's a private company in that vertical that I look at. There's also several states, and you're probably bordering on 15 or 20, where either psychedelics have been decriminalized or legalized. So to your point, looking hard at the space. If I break it down further, What I tend to look at is three different things. I think you have about 120 companies that are involved in some way, shape, or form in the therapeutic drug development of these compounds. And honestly, for me, outside of probably six or seven, I don't care. And the reason that I don't care is that MAPS has a PTSD, effectively MDMA product entering phase three, Compass has a psilocybin entering phase three, and Awaken has a ketamine entering a phase three. Outside of that, you basically have one, two, three, four, five companies, GH Research, MindMed. B-more, Apex, that have phase 2Bs ongoing in either psilocybin, LSD, or DMT, effectively for depression, anxiety, or alcohol, or PTSD. Outside of that cohort of companies, you have seven drugs that are either going to be approved or not in the next two or three years. And I think Pharma buys a couple of those companies. And if we just look at a probability-adjusted development program, two of those drugs get approved. One of those companies gets bought by Pharma, and the rest of them die. On the therapeutic drug development side, I'm not as interesting because there's a cohort, the cohort's formed, there's an advanced stage of the cohort, and the advanced stage of the cohort is going to dictate how capital flows into the rest of the cohort and the success of the rest of the cohort. What's really interesting to me is the clinic side. How are you going to deliver drug to the patient? And the other thing that's the most interesting to me is what I'll call the CPG side of things. Because you have, just like in cannabis, a fairly non-enforced, unregulated market where every cocktail party that I go to, every dinner that I go to, the first conversation is, do you know somebody who can give me microdoses? So what's really interesting to me and where that market develops is that I think the pharma side is going to shake out like pharma usually shakes out. But the real opportunity is on the delivery and the consumer side of things. And I think you're seeing a lot of efficacy there. And you're seeing a lot of people, specifically in their 20s and older, who are looking for a plant-based wellness solution, I think because they've seen the relative toxicity of pharmaceutical products and are skeptical of them, more skeptical of them than I've ever seen. Something happened in our generation, which is very important, which is COVID caused people to question science. And that has transformed the thematic thinking of the therapeutic landscape in a way which I don't understand, but it's true. I think that catalyst has caused people to say, well, what else is there for me? If you go to three oncologists with stage two breast cancer, they're all going to tell you the same thing. Well, here's what you need to do. And then it's radiation and chemo. Well, is there anything else? There's nothing else. So that's what, what I think about that sector. I think it's going to be very, very, very important. And I'm waiting and observing.
1: The clinical side, the delivery side, and how it's being presented and accessible to people that are younger. I saw that on that Facebook ad. The ad was, are you depressed? Do you have anxiety? Take this assessment because ketamine could be helpful to you. And it does come with therapy. Like I was going down to see like, what is this? The company is called Mind Bloom. That was a company that was seeing those ads. It's not just the drug, it is the process too. Mm-hmm. Like having therapists be there for you, feeling that you're heard, and then feeling safe to take it because you already have all your expectations and going in it, knowing what to expect versus you're just given a pharmaceutical drug. Not that it's like psychoactive or anything, but it's not really helpful. I mean, I mean,
0: listen, the other thing that I'll tell you is I might sound like I really know a lot of things and I don't. I just have access to a lot of information and I get a lot of research and I see a lot of things. So as an example, okay, I advise a fund that has been on the most early stage of things like psychedelics and advanced materials and eco. It's a young guy out of Texas whose name is Ford Smith and his fund's called UltraNative. So UltraNative was one of the first investors in MAPS. And MAPS has a public benefit corporation that they went out and raised money for and have been raising money for to get their drug through a phase three. So I got invited as an investor to help invest an allocation into MAPS. So I've seen under the covers of the inner workings of a lot of these things. So the knowledge that I have in some of these things is not just I'm opining out of ether. I've seen a global pharma level team put forth. One of the most detailed investor presentations on a sector that I've ever seen, I'm basing opinion upon that. The numbers that I rattle off are because I'm on the mailing list on the cannabis side of every single major investment bank, and I get pushed all of their institutional research. I think I share that with you guys on a monthly basis. So the opinions that I derive are not just because I'm sitting here like ruminating in a room full of smoke. It's because I'm taking all of this data and I'm kind of saying, all right, well, how's that going to play out?
2: Yeah. And what I was going to add to this is we're also absorbing a lot of this data, less on the cannabis side, but more on the biotech side. And I see the cannabis legalization and usage. It's been long overdue, knowing that the farm bill came along and hemp had always been a very important plant for the country. It is on the dollar bill. It was essential up until it became illegal. But there is like societal forces. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned you have this doubt in science. But I also think think that there's so much change going on. And if you catch me in a bad day, what I'll say is this decade, the 20s, is really about cannabis and psychedelics. And those are going to be by the end of the decade in widespread use. Cannabis
0: is very tricky because you have a bunch of white guys in suits and white women in suits that have built 10 companies that are doing somewhere between $250 million a year and a billion dollars a year in revenue growing and selling a product that you have a lot of people that aren't arrested in jail for and sitting in jail. So one of the problems that you encounter in the legalization of cannabis at any level is how do you compensate society for that? And I don't know how you do that. Where it then manifests in cannabis specifically is that because it's so capital constrained, you have a bunch of people that have either operated in the legacy market or affected in some way by the criminalization of cannabis, who kind of believe that cannabis should get different rules or different sets of constraints that apply to other businesses. And the regulatory framework that you have in each state is such a maze, it doesn't make it easy. So I'm just going to give you an example. I don't know what the attrition rate is of biotech companies, but I know there's some statistic we've looked at that 70% of businesses that are started within a year fail within 18 months. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a higher attrition rate in cannabis, but what I do find is that the legacy part of the cannabis community can understand that not every caterpillar is going to turn into a butterfly. In biotech, you've come to accept the fact that most companies are going to blow up. And as cannabis begins to mature, you'll see maybe a greater acceptance that just not every company is going to work. I don't know how that translates back into doing something for the socioeconomic inequality that exists in the commercialization of cannabis, but it's all part of that mix. And it's going to be part, I think, of the cannabis and industry maturation process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the big topics in New York. And I know that's not your favorite market when it comes to cannabis. And I don't know if it's just smoke and mirrors or like just a marketing ploy to say that, okay, We're going to award some licenses to people that have been disadvantaged. Communities have been disadvantaged by the criminalization of cannabis. So I don't know how that actually plays out in numbers. Is this disadvantaged community now flourishing? I mean, will it take some time or is it just smoke and mirrors?
0: I'm officially standing up and getting on my soapbox now.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. (laughs) The term is social equity. Yeah. There's not an audience here, but to the extent that an audience listens to anything I have to say, I can't think of many places that social equity has actually worked it's the right thing. It's a great idea. But instead of awarding people that have been affected by cannabis licenses or using people that have been affected by cannabis to empower other groups to get licenses, what they need to do is they just need to give these fucking people money. Yeah. So if you look at what's going on in New York, I don't know how many retail stores New York is going to allow to exist. I don't know how many retail stores New York is going to support. If I just deconstruct the back end economics, I don't care what you're giving these fucking social equity people. But unless you're giving them like a million bucks to run a store for a year, it doesn't fucking matter what you're giving them because they're probably not going to succeed as business people. So, like, the problem with social equity licensing is that it's been put forth as a political notion with the right intention, which is I'm going to help people who have been affected by cannabis. But I don't want to say it's smoke and mirrors, but it's kind of like destined to fail because you're not creating a competitive landscape advantage for them. You're not giving them money. You're not allowing them to compete more effectively against the 10 battleships that are there that have already gotten bullets and weapons and are ready to go. And you're creating a situation of false hope and false expectation. Are some of the social equity people going to be successful? Sure. There's a social equity license aggregator in L.A. who's effectively holding 10 or 12 social equity licenses. And if you drew a circle around city and county of Los Angeles, it's a great footprint. They've opened one store. And they're trying to get rid or find someone to invest in all of their other stores. They can't. So social equity just is destined to be flawed. It's, in my opinion, been a very nice political chip that people have played in order to find a way to do something to empower people that have been affected by cannabis. But I I really can't think of many places where it's actually worked.
1: Seth, again, I'd like to say that I am very impressed by all of your advocacy for entrepreneurs or your entrepreneurship advice that you provide on LinkedIn. It's been very inspiring to see. But for our audience who may not have followed you on LinkedIn, but soon will follow you on LinkedIn after they hear this, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs that are looking to get into the cannabis space, biotech space? I know you already provided some t- bits of advice, but to sum it up, what are some of your top tips, I guess you can say?
0: How I'm going to answer that is to talk more thematically about what's important to me and why I look at things. One of the things that's really important to me is cohorts. And we've talked about it a few times. I think as an entrepreneur, before you start a company, you really have to understand where you fit in the landscape and why you fit in that landscape. Does what you're doing deserve to be a company? So as an example, earlier, we talked about the psychedelic cohort landscape. We talked about four different verticals in that landscape. And we talked about all the companies in each vertical. So where do you fit? Because the first thing that someone like me or my analyst is going to do is I'm going to say, figure out where they fit now inside baseball for you as the entrepreneur you're thinking oh i need to figure out why i'm better than those companies or how my features and benefits contrast those companies for me it's totally different for me it's how many people are there why are they there who's invested how much of invest has been invested what's left so for me the reason i want to put you in a cohort is i want to see are you fundable Are you competitive? And is there more money that's going to come in the space? So that's the first thing is don't underestimate the importance of knowing your cohort and where you are. The second thing, which I will say, and and I'm starting to say this more and more and more is numbers just don't lie. They just don't lie. So if you have an operational business and you have numbers, if they're good, tell me why they're good. If they're bad, Tell me why they're bad. Don't sell me sunshine because I'm not going to believe that it's clear and sunny. I'm going to believe it's cloudy understand the importance of your numbers, because ultimately the quantitation of those are going to either help you or hurt you. And for me, usually the biggest red flag is if I can't get the numbers to make sense, if there's something about the numbers that just doesn't click for me, I can't, I'm done. And the third thing that I would say, and this is very, very, very difficult for people to understand, and it's taken me years of pain and suffering and learning, Allow, don't force. Allow, don't force. If you want to make your own luck, you want to be persistent, you want to take every opportunity, you want to take the meeting. When someone says no, or inclines to say no, don't go back seven times you're gonna turn them off. And if you put out, here's what I'm trying to do and here's what I'm trying to accomplish and you can come on the ride with me or not. I've now found in the last couple of years specifically, that message resonates and what ends up coming back to me might not be exactly what I want, but might be what I need. It might not be the fact that someone's going to invest in your company. It might be that you made a relationship now and they do something for you two or three years from now. But I think I've found that forceful used car mentality to fundraising or to running a company just doesn't work. So for me, it's just allow, don't force. And those are probably the three Biggest things that I've found are secrets, for lack of a better description, and they've served me very well.
1: Awesome. That's great. Those are hot tips. Those are going to be uh, very helpful for our listeners, not only in business, but also in life. Allow, don't force, you know, when you're just living every single day. I think the cohort thing is something that you've mentioned before, and it's very important. I do like the fact that you're talking about a position versus being competitive. I think that's a really great advice for our aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening. So thank you so much, Seth always a pleasure speaking with you
2: we will definitely have you back
0: (laughs) well i'm so appreciative of your time i'm so appreciative of the relationship i'm very appreciative of the platform and i am wishing everyone a healthy and peaceful 2024 for the entire planet please please can we stop the madness
2: yeah all right thank you seth thank you guys Iram, you are very excited to get Seth back on the podcast. So what do you think about having him back?
1: Seth is a joy to speak with. First of all, I told him this and our producers, Kevin, Paige, Hector, hello. They love listening to him because his voice is so smooth true compliment. And of course, he's a personality. You mentioned in the intro that Seth has an outsized LinkedIn presence. And it's a joy to watch him share his thoughts, but also how he is leveraging images and putting himself out there, his insights out there. It's been fun. He also made a claim on LinkedIn that he might start a podcast, which would be so cool to listen to.
2: Yeah, I mean, he did say he was going to do it. So we're waiting for that. Seth, where's the podcast? One thing we love about Seth is that he always listens to us. He admitted from the beginning, he would put us on as he was getting on his treadmill and he would listen to the podcast and send us notes. So Seth, if you're listening to this, make sure you continue to do that. I think it has made us better in what we do here at Grow Everything. I think it's also super interesting to think about cannabis, not just from a biotech point of view, but the complexity of the plant. The cannabis plant is extremely complicated. There's different plants around the world. There's things that are called land race plants, meaning plants that have never been hybridized or bred with other plants. But how do you think cannabis compares to psychedelics, Rum? I mean, we did get a little bit into that. And I know that was something you are very curious to ask Seth about.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Seth mentioned this in the episode. He talked about how psychedelics fit in the pharmaceutical development model because it's one small molecule versus plant medicine scale up. So we're talking about cannabis here, which has 500 compounds. And it's harder to kind of navigate that landscape because those compounds might influence each other when it comes to the efficacy. So the small molecule psychedelic is just one, just one compound. It can fit into a pipeline and you can sell it. Now, how psychedelics treat different disorders is continuing to be validated in the medical world. I think a lot of people have their own personal experiences with it. And depending on what type of psychedelic we're talking about, there's a variety. And some have been used to treat a lot of mental disorders. There are clinics that are dedicated to the exploration of psychedelics to help with, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder people that are in deep depression. I had a friend who she's very straight edge. She's a lawyer, but she is going through a very traumatic experience and nothing is helping her. And she actually talked to me about, she read an article about psilocybin being something that is helpful people with depression. And I was like, yeah, I heard it too. Just takes you out of your element, your day-to-day and helps you think beyond your ego there's a lot of collective thinking that can happen, but it requires a guide. I met one of those guides at Beta. So Paul Stamets, he is the father of the fungal kingdom because he knows so much about mushrooms and he was there giving his talk, but he had a colleague with him who is a clinician in Canada and has a practice of providing psychedelics in a very regimented way, which Seth also talked about in this episode.
2: Yeah, I mean, the results that are out there have been pretty astounding. I mean, first of all, you have this whole cohort, and we're going to talk about cohorts in a minute, of people who have been microdosing psychedelics, either LSD or psilocybin mushrooms, which they do for focus, or concentration, and apparently it was very popular, probably continues to be very popular among a certain part of the Silicon Valley crowd, or should we say amongst the tech crowd. But when you do the kinds of things that you're talking about in where people go to a counselor and they're treated safe or end of life, someone who has terminal cancer, someone who has terrible depression or has terrible alcohol addiction syndrome, even just a few of those psychedelic journeys, if you want to call it that, can have a profound effect on them. I've watched some YouTube videos where people who are terminally ill with cancer have really been able to come to terms with end of life and and what that means to them through the psychedelic medicine and also the guide. So I think it's very interesting that we're starting to talk about this more and that it's actually becoming... I don't know if we should say mainstream, but becoming more common. And I hope that your friend, the one that you mentioned, is able to solve her problem or find the person that's going to help her. Because we know that depression can be very debilitating, especially if you're someone who works in a high stress situation, which it sounds like she does.
1: Yeah, that's the issue is like where in the U.S. can you do something like this legally? She's a lawyer. She's not going to try to circumvent any rules, I don't think. But Or maybe she has to go on a medical trip or a a vacation where you go and get treated for something because it's just not available in the U.S. or it's too expensive. A lot of people that do that. It was like like health tourism. Yeah, that's medical
2: tourism, but there's got to be a different name for psychedelic tourism. And it's interesting because... I had sat next to a doctor at a dinner maybe like two years ago, like after we were starting to come out of COVID. And he had gone to Holland and spent five days on a psychedelic retreat to I can call it that. And he said that the first two days were just getting prepared. There was this group of 10 or so professionals, spent two days learning what they were going to go through, then finally took the medicine one day with the guides, everybody had their own guide, and then spent another day or two processing it. He said it was transformational. So yeah, there is that kind of medical tourism. But I think that you can find states where you're able to do that. I think Oregon and Colorado are states where psychedelics are legal for treatments, but I'm not sure. So any listener who wants to correct me, please do.
1: That's a good one. I'll have to look into that for her. I appreciate that Seth had talked more about it. He does a great job of sharing market insights on what's going on in the cannabis space. And obviously, now the psychedelic space is coming up in the market. And he also drops a lot of company names, which I think is really helpful for listeners because it helps ground some of the insights that are shared and it can help them track. We have a list of these companies in the show notes, and you can think about them now that you have more of a sense of what's going on in the cannabis and psychedelic space. And, Hopefully that is valuable to you, whether you want to invest or be a customer or be a partner. I don't know, depending on who you are. I think that Seth really brings a wealth of knowledge and action items. I mean, he's just like very proactive. I I enjoy his very exclusive monthly email he mentioned that we get that has some of the highlights on what's going on in the cannabis industry. Some of them are very, very dense, so I don't necessarily get into all of that. But if we have a customer or client that needs those insights, you know, I'll be reading all of that. And then the cohorts, I think Seth really focuses on this a lot. And it's something that I have thought about regularly. I myself have been a part of cohorts when we received investment from other venture funds and they invest in a series of companies. The funds that invested in my companies really invest in the founders and the ideas Some of them are thematic, so they're looking at maybe advanced tech or climate or female founders, which is very interesting. But Seth is really talking about like, well, what's the cohort look like for the cannabis industry? And something we didn't talk about, but Seth, you're listening, the idea of having a cohort that is a mixture of asset light to asset heavy, or maybe I should say that backwards, you have a cohort that just feeds into each other. The companies just feeding into each other. So you have a company that is growing. You have a company that's manufacturing. You have a company that's distributing. You have a company that is on the retail side or the product side, and they all work together to help build this part of the economy. That's something that I know Seth had mentioned in the episode, but something I think we could always talk about, how do we organize people into companies and how do they work with each other? And you can have that influence.
2: Yeah. And I think it's worth it to maybe unpack that a little bit because in, in for example, consumer biotech, I'll use that as the example, you've had some spectacular failures of companies that have been asset heavy and have really tried to build out an entire infrastructure, maybe copying what the pharmaceutical industry does from discovery all the way to production and commercialization. That's a pretty heavy lift for a startup and especially for a company where you're producing a product that needs to be produced at a very low cost. Now, the counter to that would be someone who is a asset light company. And let's just use the consumer biotech space and apply it specifically, say, to personal care. Let's just say you, Iram and I decide that we want to start a biotech personal care company that focuses on dry skin. We wouldn't necessarily want to create this gigantic infrastructure. So I think the asset light model would be what's going to be the brand that we build, what's going to be the cream or probiotic that we develop that is going to be specifically for people who have dry skin, and how would we segment it. And then how do we collaborate with people across the entire ecosystem to make sure that something we create can be developed at a very low cost while still being profitable for the business? So Seth talks a lot about that in psychedelics and in cannabis and also in synthetic biology. And that's something that we are always looking at as well. And I think that as more infrastructure is built out, as more companies appear, it becomes easier for people to think about using biotechnology to develop a product and to really grow Everything.
1: Perfect. <laughs> Perfect insight. All right. Well, that's Carl.
2: a pod. <laughs> that's a pod. <laughs> you you,
1: you wrapped that up in a nice little package and you just gave it to us. Thank you.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, that's a pod. If you've got any burning questions for the, either ERUM or I or Seth, you can leave them on the website. We've got a hotline number that we get messages and we take them very seriously. It's in the show notes and save it as your contacts under the Grow Everything hotline. It actually is a direct text message to us. So if you feel the need, we welcome your insight and your questions.
1: All right, peace out. See you later.
2: See you later.